Welcome to the Sacred Emergence Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Wong, and I'm so thrilled that you're here. This is a place where you'll be guided to living your most aligned life so that your truest, most radiant self can emerge. We'll be jamming on topics ranging from spirituality, entrepreneurship, to wellness and lifestyle design, and everything in between that can support you to grow, evolve, and shine, all the while not taking ourselves too seriously. So if you're ready to step into your leadership, break through limiting beliefs, own all of who you are, and expand in abundance, grab yourself your faith cup of tea, and let's dive in. Hello, friends. So in this week's episode, I've had the pleasure of talking to Alyssa Johnson, who is a dear friend of mine. And uh, our conversation was really good. We talked a lot around trauma. Uh, We talked about white supremacy and doing the work to dismantle racism. Um, And it was actually a really good conversation. So I'm so excited for you to tune in. And just to give a little bit of background, Alyssa Johnson is a lawyer, teacher, and consultant who works with professionals to help them achieve a greater sense of well-being in their lives. Using trauma-informed tools, productivity tools, and body awareness tools, Alyssa helps professionals create better boundaries between work and home life and ultimately experience greater joy and pleasure in their everyday lives. I have Alyssa's uh, information in the show notes, so if you want to connect with her, learn more about her work, please check out her website and uh, all the links are in the show notes. And enjoy this episode. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Sacred Emergence. Today, I have with us one of my like dearest friends who I just love, Alyssa Johnson, who is joining us by way of Austin, Texas. And um, I really love Alyssa's work because it's really like, I just like her posts on Facebook and online is like, it's really around, well, a lot of things, but I was really drawn to like trauma informed and how like you're bringing well-being to the workplace. So Alyssa, welcome to Sacred Emergence, to the podcast. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much. I am so excited and honored to be here. I just, I think the world of you. So what a, what a pleasure for me to be able to do this. Yeah. And so like backing up a bit. So you and I connected years ago in Seattle and we connected Mm -hmm. through the sister goddess community. So Mama Gina School of Womenly Arts. And I just feel like it is so incredible that there's like lawyers who are doing pleasure work in the lawyer landscape. So that's amazing. Thank you. It's so fun. And it is definitely, um, definitely a different way for lawyers to think and interface with the world because one just generally does not associate lawyering and pleasure in the same sentence. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's like, you're breaking ground, like, like, like just with things that I'm seeing that I'm reading, um, feedback and testimonials that you've shared from your clients. It just seems like people are really drawn to like, oh my God, there's a different way of doing things. So can you like share more about that? Yeah. So, so really, so I, I uh, graduated from law school in 2004 and then I practiced law in DC for a few years. I quit the practice of law in 2008 because I was miserable and the legal market in DC is very aggressive. And what I mean by that is that it's really built on three things. Um, how much money you make, 
how much you work and who you work for. Those tend to be the three uh, values of law in, in DC. And I saw the trajectory of my life in the partners, you know, the more, among more senior attorneys. And for the most part, many of them were deeply unhappy. They were in terrible health. They had horrible interpersonal relationships because all they did was work. And so that was really, that was the path I was headed. And so I quit practicing and then I went and worked in corporate America for a number of years where I sold legal products to law firms in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. That was a much better experience. I went from working like 70 to 80 hours a week to like 50 to 60, which, which is know, normal. Like, uh -huh, yeah, amazing. right. I was like, oh my God, I have so much free time. Um, now I laugh at that. I would never work that much now. Uh, Actually, but you know, time felt so liberating. Yeah. yeah really like no, I was going to say like 50 to 60 actually isn't normal. That's even beyond like a full-time eight hour work day. Uh -huh. Yeah. And that's that, but that's like normal for lawyers, um, you know, or actually, yeah, depending on the, the area and the, the size of the organization you work for, but yeah, but coming from like 80 hours a week, I was like, oh my God. Um, and then I left that, you know, I left that whole life in 2013 and I swore off law and lawyers forever. I was so jaded and I was just, I was at a really wounded place. Um, but slowly over time, I, I ended up re-engaging with the legal profession. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas now, and in a very different capacity in that I volunteer with a nonprofit here in Austin that works with children who have been removed from their home by Child Protective Services due to abuse or neglect. And so they are in the child welfare system. And uh, I actually started volunteering for this organization and I was in court and I was interacting with a lot of lawyers regularly, the children's attorneys um, or the parents' attorneys. And I found that I really loved being with lawyers again. I really loved that high level thinking, um, that very high level conversation. Uh, but I also found lawyers here were deeply unhappy as they were in DC, but for very different reasons. And so my heart really started changing and I started hearing inner, an inner calling to work with lawyers again, but in a very different capacity this time, really like helping lawyers um, understand, you know, self-awareness, you know, emotional intelligence, trauma-informed lawyering and just trauma-informed um, aspects of our personality, and then pleasure. Like, how do we actually have fun? Because uh, one thing that you can, it is easy to pick up as a lawyer with messaging and with many people's legal experiences is that you can be happy or you can be a lawyer, that you don't get both. And that's the reality for quite a few attorneys, I think. And I wanted to be a part of changing that. Mm, it's so interesting how there's that like either or. Mm -hmm. And, and it's like, I think people drink that mindset and then sign up for like awfulness. <laughs> yeah. So it's refreshing that like, okay, you saw like this need and do you mind me asking like what like unhappiness that the lawyers in Austin were experiencing? Yeah. So um, family court, the child welfare system, uh, that tends to be a, a very emotionally draining type of lawyering because we really we're dealing with a lot of woundedness and um, the child welfare system is is very um it's just, it's very damaging to families in a lot of ways, right? To come in, have your children taken from you is horribly traumatizing for the children. And, and then also for the families and then what they have, you know, like that their communities, their families finding out, like, it's just, it's just a really traumatizing situation for everyone involved. 
And, um, and so lawyers are being exposed to this regularly and we're hearing and we're seeing and we're reading a lot of reports and uh, police incidences of um, alleged abuse or neglect. And that is of course very hard on the psyche and, and really takes a toll on us emotionally. And one of the things that is really unique about being a lawyer in a certain sense is that we have confidentiality. So we can't share what's happening, you know, with people who, um, in most situations. And so a lot of times lawyers don't have a safe place to unload this stuff. And um, there's a lot of stigma in, in our country, in the world, within the legal profession about seeking help, whether it's, you know, a mental health practitioner or some other form of help that one is drawn to. Uh, so even like going to an outside resource to just kind of to have that emotional release and, and process all of the things we're being exposed to, it's there's a huge disincentive in the legal profession because there's such a fear of being reported to the bar and then being brought up before a bar committee uh, and potentially losing one's license. And so it's just like lawyers are holding all of this and because we're lawyers we're not therapists we haven't learned how to process we haven't learned what trauma looks like we don't know how we're holding trauma in the body we don't know how to handle secondary trauma or vicarious trauma which is trauma we're exposed to through other people and so it, it can be like a ticking time bomb for many attorneys that all of this stuff is in their system and there isn't a healthy way to release it Mm, so good. Yeah. Like trauma work has really gotten my attention over the past few years. And so I love that, like you're doing work around trauma and just realizing, oh my God, it's like, especially what you said around mental health, it's really kind of like it's stigmatized. Yeah. Very it's much crazy. So. Like I know even like, like police force or like anything service professionals, like, <laughs> I don't know, like firefighters and like anything that, you know, that is supposed to be like well and able, like what they can experience trauma, like they're exposed to so much of it. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, I love it. I love like you're, you're just feeling a, a need. Thank you. And I want to say there are a lot of people doing this work and, and it's, it's re really receiving a lot of attention, certainly within the legal profession. So I don't want it to seem like I'm the only one. That's not true at all. And I am so blessed that I'm interested in this because my path has really led me to this and has opened this up to me. Mm. Yeah. So I'm curious about like, like for you, and that's something I really respect is that I've seen your posts around, um, around the patriarchy and white supremacy mm -hmm. and doing, yeah. you know, work around racism. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, like, how's your experience with this? And just, you know, cause it's like, it is intense inner work. I would say mm -hmm. for everybody, no matter what race you're at or what race yeah. you are. Yeah. Um, so I would love to hear like, just your experience with it. Sure. With, with the race literacy piece specifically. Yeah. 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 So um, that too has been a journey. And I would love to say that I reached a pinnacle of development or evolution where I was like, I want to stand up as a white person and do this work and, you know, and, and just be a better person and stand in solidarity and with my brothers and sisters of color. But that would be a lie. 
Um, I was really attached to the white supremacy handbook or playbook, which every white person is given. Of course, it's not in writing, uh, but we are received messaging about what is acceptable to say and what's not. Every white person gets it. And um, and I was really attached to that, you know, to the, and let me give an example, like things like I don't see color, right? Which mm-hmm. is just a horrifying and invalidating thing to say. Um, and it actually comes from Dr. King's statement where he said he hoped at one point, you know, people wouldn't see color. Like, and he was using it in a different way, but white people took it and now we, and we ran with it and, um, and then we hid behind white supremacy with it. But um, so I would say things like that and just one of a bajillion examples. Um, but what actually really was the, I think the inner calling or the pinnacle point for me, because I think a lot of people, white people reach that point where it's just so uncomfortable. It's like, okay, I can't, my conscience is telling me that these things that I'm thinking and saying are just something doesn't feel right is what I think a lot of white people go through, certainly what I did. And um, it was because of my work with the child welfare system, Mm. because what, um, what is absolutely true, certainly in Texas, and there is no way that Texas is alone here, is the school to prison pipeline. And what that is for people who are not familiar with that is um, children of color are disproportionately punished in schools and funneled to prison. It is so rampant. And I I mean, I've experienced it time and time and time again with my work with the nonprofit I volunteer for, like very, like often having to go into schools and advocate for kiddos and and argue to schools why like jail is not the next step here, right? Like that's not where we can go. Whereas white children almost never face this. And so um, that's where it really, my desire for race literacy work, I think really arose was just seeing firsthand what um, these children of color are going through in addition to their own experiences of childhood trauma. They're coming, you know, there was a reason they're in the child welfare system, something's happening. And and then they're getting in the child welfare system, which is horribly traumatizing. And then now they're, you know, experiencing race trauma on top of that. And so that's where it originated from. And uh, it started in 2015 when I started doing some race literacy, literacy trainings with the nonprofit I volunteer for because um, it's um, disproportionately in Austin, uh, the vast majority of children in the child welfare system are uh, brown or black, but the majority of children in Travis County are white. So what should be in the child welfare system or majority of white children. And then, you know, it like should match the percentage makeup, but it doesn't. So it's Austin is racist. And, um, and so when they start talking about race in the nonprofit that I volunteer for, I had the, the stereotypical white woman response. I froze. I couldn't think I wanted to cry, like do all the things. And, um, but I started there. Right. And I just, over the years kept at it kept reading more, kept learning more, kept taking more classes and slowly, but surely my ego started, um, crumbling or, or being reshaped into a way that I'm much more solid now around racism and and white supremacy in a way that I was not a few years ago. And, and then I think also for many white people, we start to reach a point where we want to speak out. And so that's where I'm at now is really becoming um, much more vocal about my race literacy journey, how I am racist. I fully own and embrace that. It does not make me a bad person. It means I'm human. And 
how am I looking at it? How am I addressing it? And what am I doing to dismantle white supremacy? Which from my learnings, that's really the way we have to deal with it. By saying we're not racist or by pushing it away, resisting it, that doesn't actually change anything. Oh, I just love all of like all that you've shared because it does. I just feel like, you know, as a woman of color for me, it's mm-hmm. like I feel like things can only change when white people like kind of spearhead it because I just like, you know, when Black Lives Matter came out, like the whole movement in 2020, it was like, I, it's like black people have already been trying to do this work for so long. And there is like this uphill battle, but we need, so we need more white people who are like, Oh fuck, like I'm contributing and having like what you said, like at first it was so uncomfortable and I have so much respect for just like your awareness and you're like, oh my gosh, like my ego, I had to like reshape my ego as I was learning more about it. And that like deep respect, even though it's like, yeah, everyone should be doing this, but not everyone will. No, I, I, I don't see a majority of white people doing it. You may have a different perspective. I don't know. I, I would like, I just don't see it. But yeah, yeah. I think it's like, no, I totally agree. No, like I, I'm not an expert. I can just speak from my own personal experience as, Mm -hmm. you know, um, a woman of color and it's like, but I don't have like, I don't, if someone came to me, I'm like, I don't know, like go read a book, (laughs) you know what I mean? Right. Um, but like, there was something that you said around, um, Oh, just the acknowledgement that you're owning, like, yeah, I am racist. And I have to say, like, so am I. Like, I think we've all been brought up with some form of discrimination of other people um, and just saying, well, okay, like, okay, now what? What do we do about it? Um, What are your thoughts around, like, people who kind of avoid the topic because they don't want to cause more Mm -hmm. trauma around the topic? Like, yeah, Uh, I know that place deeply and I can certainly empathize with it. Um, this is how I handle it. So as I have learned in my race literacy trauma, uh, race literacy studies, excuse me, um, white people hold the trauma of racism in their bodies as white supremacy, brown people hold it as colonization and black people hold it as enslavement. Mm. And because I am white, I can speak very intimately to the white experience, white guilt, white shame, white anger when people of color advance and we start to feel really threatened and angry. Um, the, the, the actual enjoyment of white privilege and then the guilt of feeling that you know enjoyment and then wanting to deny that we don't like the privilege, right? I mean, I've done all of these things. Um, and so I think what it becomes is you have to take it very slowly. Trauma is a body experience. We cannot think our way out of trauma because what happened is we had a body experience that the trauma got lodged in the body to begin with. And so we have to untangle or unravel it from the body. And with that, you have to move really slowly. The body will demand it. Actually, um, there will probably be um, some, some, emotional and body consequences if we try to move through it too quickly. And so there, this isn't an, in, this is not an exception. White people, we've got to move slowly. And as you bump up against pieces, um, my guess is a lot, there will be a lot of defensiveness, a lot of anger, a lot of shame and guilt. And as you bump up against them, giving yourself time to process it 
notice that it's there, let yourself feel it. Um, take the time you need to let your system realign internally and come into some internal realizations, many of which are not pretty, that um, we are the oppressor. White people are the oppressor. There is really no exception to that. And we're used to hearing messages that we're the savior. Uh, and, and then once you feel like you've shored that up, keep going. And it gets easier over time. Now, I will say I grew up in an unloving home. Uh, I experienced prolonged childhood abuse. And so I um, uh, spent years in therapy, eight years in and out of um, therapy to heal childhood trauma. And because of that, uh, I am familiar with how my system processes trauma and how it untangles it. And I have gotten, it's gotten easier and quicker for me to move through trauma now. It just, it's like a muscle. Once you start doing it, it does become easier and quicker. It can take time. And that is this, that I found the exact same thing to be true with race literacy work, that um, it was much harder in the beginning. In fact, one of the very first books I tried to read, I threw across the room after reading the first chapter, because I was like, that's not me. I'm not this type of white woman. Da, 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 da. I absolutely am was, uh, and I have since finished the book and it's phenomenal. I recommend it to other people. Um, Wait, what's the book? That, it's, um, uh, so I, oh God, I knew you were going to ask that. Like, um, I'm going to have to like white women, allies, advocates, something like okay. that. Patrice Jackson, C-A-T-R-I-C-E Jackson is the okay. author and it's phenomenal. Um, it's got a beautiful title that I'm blanking on right now, but I have recommended it to people. Anyway, the point being, you know, it takes time and it gets easier. And then you just get to a point, at least that, that I've experienced that um, it doesn't hurt. Like, what are you going to do? Call me racist. I already know that I'm racist. <laughs> you know, it's like when we, when we do that inner work, we take the power away from other people. Like, what are you going to tell me that I don't already know? And from an, from a white person's perspective, right? There are many black people as I've become more vocal and I share my experience and my journeys, they will often comment on my posts and be like, did you think about this perspective or this angle? And I'm like, no, I didn't, you know? <laughs> and so that's a new aspect to my development and my consciousness that I'm learning about a person of color's experiences. Um, but it doesn't hurt the way it used to. Now I actually really enjoy race literacy work. And I'm like, okay, what are those places in my consciousness that I haven't looked at because of my privilege that I now am being presented the opportunity to because someone so kindly has pointed out perhaps an error in my thinking or a way that I haven't been complete in my analysis. Mm, so good. And like, I just feel like, like, especially just with your the amount of work that you've done and the work that you're doing, yeah. like people will feel safe with you. Right. Like, I mean, even my interaction with you, I'm like, Oh, I can be myself. I can bring up this topic of race and like um I remember I sent you a DM thanking you for a post that you shared around what is it period patriarchy and white supremacy yeah because yeah, yeah. it's like okay good there's someone who's championing this and like who's being vocal about it and I feel safe just talking to you about like dang like this thing happened you know what I mean it's just like yeah. I'm not stepping on eggshells around you I'm really, I'm happy to hear that. And that is, um, if I, I really want white people to hear this, if people of color are not comfortable around you, it is your issue. <laughs> it is not a person of color's problem. It's, it's our issue as white people, because we aren't, we aren't doing the work or we're not being vocal or we're not, um, putting, you know, putting into action ways that we are being race literate. And so the assumption has to be, because that's our history as white people, that we're race illiterate and that it's not safe to be around us. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I hope, you know, white people can hear that. 
And the other thing too, you know, um, is that I'm very, very intentional in my posts. I don't know if you've um, noticed, but I tend to speak in first person. I have done this. I have had this experience unless I'm sort of speaking about white supremacy sort of overall, or, um, you know, white patriarchy. I don't tend to just say speak patriarchy because I don't think we live in a true patriarchy in our country. I think we live in a white patriarchy. I want to pin that. Yeah. I'm very, I'm pretty vocal about this too. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's a true patriarchy here. Um, it's a patriarchal, uh, white supremacist, you know, like, and white women are many white women are alignment with white patriarchy as I was, I absolutely was. Um, and, um, but I speak in I, this has been my experience. This is what I've learned about myself. This is how I exhibited these behaviors, things that I've said, where I'm at now with it, because, um, I, I have found in my own experiences when I say you, <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when I lash out, which I get in those very soapbox moments, I've gotten onto them a couple of times during our podcast. Um, it doesn't land well with people. And it immediately, because of trauma, white people become super defensive. We can't hear when we're in a traumatized state, the, the rational mind becomes unavailable. Uh, and, 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 and then all conversation is gone, right? You just can't. And so when I make it about me, people can read it and they can take what they need and leave the rest. And I've had a lot of people reach out to me privately because they felt comfortable being like, Oh, this is how I I related to that piece. Right. And so, you know, it's also having to be really comfortable for me sharing my own experiences and being really honest. Like this is me. This is what I am. I love that. And it's so funny. You're like, when you turn it into you, it's, Yeah, those don't end well. Has <laughs> been my experience. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. Oh man, but yeah, and like, okay, so I love what you said, and I, I just like, like, I feel like, like, especially because you're doing this work, like, white women can approach you because they're also white, mm-hmm. and they can yeah. ask about your. So it's almost like your work not only helps people of color, but it helps white people. And it's like, it's so beneficial rather than just, I'm not, I'm not saying like it's better that a white person does it, but it just, I just feel like it can create a larger ripple effect. Yes. I completely agree with you. And, um, I, I, I think the reason is because I have access and I would love to know if you, what your thoughts are on this because I'm white, there is not a single thing I could ever say or do no matter how many white people I piss off and I piss white people off. I will never be kicked out of club white. I could have every white person on the planet hating me. And guess what? I'm still in club white. People of color, of course, don't have that privilege. Um, and so that's why I speak. I think that I do resonate because, because we just are in, many of us are just inherently kind of hardwired to more intuitively trust people who we resonate with, who we look like, who we sound like, you know, where we feel that sense of familiarity. And, you know, I, I, so I can, I can speak to a wide audience, like you said, white women, um, and, and maybe they can resonate with it more than if a black woman was saying exactly the same thing, but because of the messenger, because of her skin color, white women aren't going to be able to hear it to the same extent. That is my experience is that it's simply because of access and because of similarities. What do you think about that? I agree a hundred percent. And I experienced that like a few weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Like I, like, I don't know if it was subconsciously when I read your post about white patriarchy and periods, but Mm -hmm. like, 
it like I was experiencing like my own cycle and I and I was just thinking about all the ways that I was so grateful that I'm no longer you know having to be in like a nine to five job where I have to like take a pill like I mean like a painkiller and show up at work because I have intense cramps and like the things I've been doing to just um just in my own as an entrepreneur the things that I could do now to okay, I'm taking day one, like my first day, my second day of my period and the day before totally offline. Like I'm not, I'm not scheduling anything. And that to me is just like, whoa, like to be able to do that, it just felt so like, like, like a whole different world. Right. And I, and I think like, and it made me realize like in corporate world, we need to have more benefits that allow for women to have that. Yeah. You know, being able to like give them a period, I don't know, like you get 12 days of the year off for your mm-hmm. period. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. <laughs> and was, and in, continue, no, please. And so I wrote about it. I wrote a post, but I, I broke it up in three parts. And mm-hmm. I was surprised at some of the backlash I got from white women. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't hit me that like the pushback I got were from white women until my business coach who was white called that out. She was like, did you notice? And I was like, I did, but I wasn't sure if I was just being like overly observant. <laughs> and she's like, no, that's white fragility, what you experience. And it's not your, your job to handle that. Um, and it just, and then I, and then I went to your post and I read like, either <laughs> like the comments, I'm like, she didn't get any backlash. <laughs> And yeah. I was like, oh, this is interesting. So, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm sorry that that was, that was your experience. And I have no doubt that was one of many. Thank you. And like, I, it just made, after that, I, I felt like, oh, like, I feel like I actually need to do some work here of just being more aware of like the conversation around racism. Cause like for the longest time, I felt like it doesn't really affect me directly. Like I never felt that until a few weeks ago, like in the past I've experienced racism, but on the day to day, I'm like, oh, if I'm staying in the box of being like the Asian good girl, but I'm like, fuck that. I, I don't even subscribe to that, but I feel like there might be like an overarching energetic stereotype. And the more I show my sass, I'm like, well, that just encourages me more to show my sass. Right. Yeah. Um, awesome. But yeah. So there's so many things I wanted to talk about just based on what we've talked about so far. So yeah. one is uh, I wanted to circle back to the white patriarchy because you're like, it's not just patriarchy, which I find so fascinating. And then mm-hmm. you were going to say something when I was talking. So I didn't, if you had a thought. I don't. We'll just trust that if I meant to remember it, it will come back. Okay. Um, and the third thing I wanted to touch upon is when you're talking about feeling that trauma in the body. Um, have you read my grandmother's hands? I'm halfway through it. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Uh, Cause that just reminded me of that. I'm, I'm in the process of reading it. And so I like, that's just trauma healing work, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's circle back if you don't mind to white patriarchy, because I was, I got a pushback around the fact that I use patriarchal whiteness in my post. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was, I wrote it out of, it was like, I didn't even think that much about it. I just wrote it. Cause when I think of patriarchy, I do think about old white religious men (laughs) and I'm like, uh, the definition is probably more than my image of that, but that's what came to mind, especially around periods and like, you know, how things are done and women being, you know, misogyny in the world. Um, 
but I was like, you know, in other cultures that aren't white, like I do see male being more dominant sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, but then I don't, it's just from my observations. I don't know about all the different cultures. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear your perspective around patriarchy isn't isolated. There's whiteness attached to it. Yeah. So I'm speaking really just to the U.S., although I highly doubt we're unique here. Um, My perception and observation is that white women have it better than men of color. I royally and regularly piss white women off with the statement that we don't live in a true patriarchy. We live in a patriarchal white supremacy. So let me explain, because I have no doubt I'm pissing off some of your listeners right now. I love it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When when we think or when we notice on the news um, what's happening to men of color, and we, we want to look at this with as, as an objective of, as an eye as possible because we're working in trauma now. So the defenses might be starting to rise. Um, we continually see messages of police brutality, um, messages of um, men, you know, black men's a lot of the times, but certainly, you know, in Texas, we're talking about Hispanic men, uh, you know, across the country, but certainly I'm I'm thinking Texas too. Um, There's such a large Hispanic population here Um, that, you know, they're they're putting up mug shots or just horrible pictures of men, you know, that, that, you know, really present these human beings in the worst possible light. Um, And when we think about what is I think happening at the workplace for men of color that every single day they most likely are experiencing microaggressions or actual, you know, macroaggressions because of race that I, I think that white women have it better. We may not be paid as much. I'm not sure if that's always the case actually, but we may not be paid as much. But we don't go into work every day and have to deal with comments about our skin color. And we do have to deal with comments about um, our genitalia and our period, you know, our bleed and all these other things. But the chances of us being arrested, of us going to jail, of us um, being threatened in some way, you know, of us just being out and about in the world and, you know, being afraid of our life, I think is smaller than men of color. And so, um, and then when we also look at the way that we are represented in the media, white women uh, are always looked, you know, we are set as the standard of beauty and of what you want to achieve. And if, if you watch commercials, you will see a lot of companies talk about lightening your skin and, you know, and which is just this racism, right? You know, try like lighter the better, and um, and then in movies, it's you know it's much harder for um, a person of color to get a lead role, but you know, or a female lead role. It's always white women, and you know, it's and so we're kind of the standard by which beauty is set. And so, from that perspective, I I think that white women have it better than men of color. Do we face misogyny? Absolutely, without a doubt. But 
that is why I think we live in a white patriarchy and not a patriarchy. And um, I am particularly interested in, because I am a white woman, how white women have treated, how we have treated our brothers and sisters of color. And if you read materials, if you look at our history, we have been just as awful, sometimes worse than white men. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but we carry that in the white women's psyche and in our, our bodies. And so we have, I think, a real duty to do our inner work and start to stand with our uh, brothers and sisters of color. Because my personal belief is if white women, if we start to wake up, we start to stand up against racism, we start to do our, you know, we do our race literacy work, we speak up against it, white, white men are going to fall like that, because they don't, there isn't going to be anyone with them. And I personally think um, white men so need community, and need reassurance. And if it's not there, they're going to change real fast. That's my belief. I love that. So it's like secretly, you know, it's like, you know, my big fat Greek wedding that's saying like, oh, women are the neck, right? They turn the guy's head. <laughs> it's such a cute line, but it's like, it's kind of true. It's like white women do are so powerful. So yeah. we're so powerful. We have been told to believe that we're not. And many, you know, we've been, and from women, and, and I will say when I practice law, I actually was often treated worse by female attorneys than I was male attorneys. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, and, you know, and so it's just this continual messaging and we have to, we have to do the inner work. We have to wake up and say, okay, is that really true? And what if I, what if I actually disrupt is a great word that you hear in race literacy work. What if I actually disrupt white supremacy? What if I stop standing with white patriarchy? You know, what happens? And I mean, I, who knows? I think it would be amazing. Mm, so good. So with your work that you're doing, are you yeah. bringing that, like, how do you integrate that into your current work? Yeah. Oh, it's such a great question. I mean, I just love what I do so much. So it's, it's really, um, it takes different forms and I have, um, I work individually with people and, you know, I, I tend to focus on lawyers because, that's my background. And I, I have a sense of credibility coming in with a lawyer, having practiced, you know, lawyers, they're like, oh, she kind of, you know, she understands the, the lawyer experience. But in reality, uh, what I do and what I teach is applicable to anyone. So, uh, but like from a professional standpoint, you know, I do individual coaching and um, helping people just make changes in their lives, whatever that is what they want you know, want it to look like it's often, I want to work less and have more fun. <laughs> yeah. have better boundaries with work. Um, and then my favorite, my absolute favorite is teaching and organizational teaching. And this comes, it really kind of depends on what the organization wants, but I tend to cover a lot around emotional intelligence and emotional regulation. That's huge in the legal profession. And I can't imagine that's unique to the legal profession, but how do we actually work through our feelings? as a lawyer, um, because emotional regulation and emotional intelligence have not been prized or valued in the legal profession. Um, it's had disastrous consequences. And, um, and then I do race literacy work. I'm starting to do more and more of that. And that's I, a passion of mine, uh, you know, and that, then how do I teach, like teaching it really to white people? Um, and like, what do we do with this? And how, you know, how do we start to make our organizations more race literate? I do want to put a plug in here that race literacy work is different 
then DEIB work. And if B is new for people, that stands for belonging. Um, DEIB work is really how do we expand diversity within the organization? How do we make our policies and procedures more equitable across the board so they're not benefiting one particular group? We all generally know what that group is. Um, how do we include you know, different voices in our, in our policies and procedures and in the programs that we do? And then belonging is how do we actually bring you know, people to the table and help them feel belonged? It's a huge piece. That's super, super, super important for organizations. Race literacy um, is, is a slightly different lens and that's actually tackling our racism as white people um, because there's a way you can avoid race literacy work with DEIB work. And if white people can avoid race literacy work, they will, we just do, we don't like doing it. Uh, and my personal belief, I'm not sure yet to see how it plays out, but um, I don't think if white people address racism, DEIB work is gonna be that successful. Mm. I just don't think it will because we're still gonna have the racism. Um, so I do the race literacy lens and, um, and then, you know, pleasure, how do we actually have fun? Like, how do we infuse more pleasure into our days? And like, you know, so many of us have these work experiences that are so heavy and hard and stressful. And like, how do we start to rewrite that and rewrite our relationship to what we want to be doing in the world? And, and so it's just, I love, I love it all. It's like such a blessing that I have really kind of created my own little pathway here of getting to teach what I love to learn about. Oh, that is so good. And you also have like, you're also like connected, like spiritually, right? Like you work with angels and yeah. like we never <laughs> talked about that, but I just love that side of you that you can bring like, okay, the, here's like the work, right? The practical and Hey, like I'm also, I'm connected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. Um, that started in 2008. I was working, I was in DC and I was working, you know, like, I think at that time I was working like 60 ish hours a week. And I was like, there's gotta be more to life than working. Like it just felt so pointless to me. I'm like, why? And so just through a series of synchronistic events, my heart started opening. I started getting exposed to spirituality. If that is a term that is scary for people, um, certainly it is for the legal profession. It is um, more heart centered or more internal awareness. I will, that's often how I talk with it with lawyers. And um, slowly over time, I started working with greater consciousness, um, our expanded consciousness, like our, our higher self, our soul, or, you know, greater aspects closer to source or God or goddess, Allah, um, whatever term resonates with people. And, um, and as part of that, I started working with light beings. And that is also known as an angel or a teacher or a guide. There's tons of tons and tons of different names and types of light beings. And it became part of my work. And so now I channel, which is used in two different ways in spiritual communities. Uh, one is people may say I channel, meaning they're um, very, they can kind of tune in and they can like pick up energy and they can talk, you know, like sort of feel and they sort of speak as to like what they're hearing or feeling or sensing from the energy. And then um, another way that, that it, the term is used and how I use it, it's more narrow. And it means that I actually go into a semi-meditative state and um, light beings speak through me and they actually speak through my vocal cords. Both ways of using the word channeling are totally accurate. I just use it more narrowly because of how I use the term channeling. Uh, and so, yeah. And so they, the, the ones that I work with, the team that I'm working with right now are, are so helpful in terms of helping me um, with my business, with expanding my consciousness, with taking my next steps. They are, um, because of their perspective is just so much greater than my little human being perspective. 
perspective, they, they sort of see what's coming down the pike and, and they tell me like, this is what you want. We want you to focus on for the next few months. This is where you need to grow your skill set. And I'm finding again and again and again, that it all is playing out exactly the way that it needs to. And I end up then able to create content and teach on things that the demand is coming for. So that's just one of a bajillion ways you can work with light beings, but yeah. Oh, so when you said your team, it was your light, your team of light beings. Yeah. It's a group of them. I love it. Oh, so good. Yeah. Well, this is amazing. I've enjoyed every minute of our talk. Yeah. How can people get to know you and follow you (laughs) and learn all the things? All the things. Yes. So uh, if you want to follow me on socials, I'm most active on LinkedIn because that's where the lawyers tend to play. So that's where you would see me. And I provided my LinkedIn link. I'll share that. Yeah, great. Thank you. Cause I don't have it memorized. And um, and then I have my website is Alyssa Johnson.love, and that's A-L-Y-S-S-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N dot L-O-V-E. And on there, um, you can just fill out a form if you want to chat, or you can sign up for my email list. Uh, you can just check, take a look around. A lot of it's tailored kind of for lawyers and my coaching work, but I do have a page of just free channelings that people can download and listen to as they feel called. So yeah, that's that's how people get hold of me amazing thank you so much for your time Alyssa I just I adore you thank you I adore you thank you for this and thank you for doing your work it's so important to help you feel more supported and nourished in your body and nervous system you're invited to download the free I am supported meditation in the show notes may you feel grounded in who you are as you become the fullest expression of yourself thank you for listening to the sacred emergence podcast Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode and thank you in advance for sharing with those who can benefit. Until next time.